Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to a combined Sunday school class. And my purpose in being up here is to introduce our speaker, who's actually a very good friend of mine. A number of years ago, or years, really months it's been, uh, the Lord began stirring, in, stirring the hearts of the elders to, uh, to be thinking through how we can be the most effective leaders in our church concerning missions. Missions is not an easy ministry to, to lead, and so we began to think and pray about how we could be the most effective leaders in terms of missions. At the same time, Jason Bruns, who is our missions pastor, also, the Lord began stirring in his heart. He began to look for resources to, uh, to see how, how he might be helped, how we all might be helped in this area. We want to do the best job we could before the Lord. And the Lord brought to my mind my good friend Dave Mead, who's here to share with us. And Dave has been a leader in missions for about 40 years since we, we graduated from Moody together. In fact, Dave and his wife Kathy and Michelle and I were all in the same class. And uh, Dave and Kathy were missionaries in the Philippines. And now he has served for many years in the States in Atlanta in a church that many of us are very familiar with. We love their pastor there. And Dave is their um, missions pastor. He also is the director of a ministry known as Propempo, which, uh, international, which is really a sending ministry for missionaries and equips churches to be the best they can in supporting their missionaries. And we've been, our elders have been meeting with Dave this weekend to go over things and discuss things and think through how we might apply biblical principles to the area of missions. And so we've asked him to come this morning and share with you about missions. And I trust that your hearts will be open. You'll be attentive to Dave. And we just love Dave. And he's, uh, Dave Mead is just a wonderful guy. I've been friends for years. And we've really reconnected over the last few years in a number of ministries. So Dave, you come and share. Wow. <clears throat> it's, uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be here. I've known about uh, Steve's ministry here and about Lakeside for many years. We visited incognito when no one knew us, and we still like the church. You know? <laughs> Steve challenged me right away to a running race, and uh, I told him that I'm sure I would beat him because I would just sit on him before we started. <laughs> but um, it really is a, a pleasure to be here. Um, God has led my wife and I, we just completed our 39th year of marriage about a week ago, and to, to the glory of God, I mean, those of you who have been married a long time realize this is God's work to be married that long, and we, we just appreciate his grace and mercy in our lives, but one of the comments that just kept coming up in our discussion as we reminisced about what God has done with us over the years is that we never ever would have planned when we graduated from Moody with Steve and Michelle the path that he had us on uh, and all the things that he has used us and, and that we've seen him do through our lives in ministry. It's been, it's been really an amazing ride. Dark times, bright times, happy times, sad times, but uh, the Lord has been very, very merciful to us as in the sweep of time, which is like nothing to God, but for us to, to give us children while we're in the 
Philippines ministering among headhunters. How about that? To see churches planted that we had some small part in. To see God glorified by opening new fields and training missionaries. And then specifically in the last 20 years or so, helping churches to raise up missionaries and support them well, as, as well as then spearheading ministry into the Muslim world in the Middle East and North Africa. And uh, we are just so delighted at what God has done and is doing. And we are just as delighted to reconnect in a special way at this special time with Lakeside and with the elders and with Jason to try to see what God has. There's just so much energy in this church by God's grace. And because of the faithful ministry of the Word over the years, we're praying and hoping that we would be witnesses to see God do some really special things in years to come through this church, particularly in the area of missions. So if you have your Bibles, and I expect that you do, whether physically or electronically, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. That's where I want to start. Ephesians chapter 3 is not often recognized as a missions chapter per se. But from my perspective, it is thoroughly and completely a missions chapter. But there's one little nugget I want to lift out this morning as we start in a consideration of the centrality of the local church in missions, or you could say the priority of the local church in missions. And I want you to see this because so often we blitz through and revel in the awesome truths of Ephesians, and we just kind of read over this little bit and don't get it. And this morning I want you to get it as we begin these thoughts, this consideration, and then I'll, I'll probably refer to it again in the end if we have time. But I'm going to skip right down to verse 7, Ephesians 3, 7. And this is one of the main reasons why I say this is thoroughly a missions chapter. We get a glimpse of the personal calling of the Apostle Paul as a missionary in these verses. But listen carefully. Verse 7, I'm reading from the ESV. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me... Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I'm just going to pause there. I know it's mid-phrase, but we're going to skip down to verses 20 and 21. He goes on and explains he has a call for prayer for all the families of the earth. And he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus 
throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now, just a couple observations I want you to to pick up on. One is the larger context. I I believe, it's my conviction, and I don't have time to, to run that all out for you, that when Paul refers to the church, most times he's referring to local churches. And this is misread by many teachers, even missionaries and mission administrators preaching on passages about the church, they tend to refer to the church as the universal church, all believers sort of everywhere of all time. But when Paul is writing in his letters, he's writing to local churches. He's writing with the burden of local churches on his heart, with specific names and people involved and leaders and problems. And typically, when he mentions the local church, my conviction is that Paul is thinking of local churches, not just the universal church. And I think this is the case here. And I'm not going to take, make too much of, of it in this place, but we'll see some other things, considerations. So just look at verse 10. He says, all these things happened, these missionary calling kinds of things happened, the mystery being unfolded that the Gentiles should have the unsearchable riches of Christ preached, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Skip to verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. You get that? Connect the dots on those thoughts. What Paul is saying is, if you accept my argument, conviction, that the local church has always eternally been the plan and purpose of God as central in missions. And he's saying, David, that's pretty wild. I never heard that before. Well, you probably never read it that way before. You probably never thought about it as you just blitzed through and checked the box on, yeah, I read that chapter for my Bible reading today. But it just stands out in glowing neon light for me when I read that because it says that the local church has always been purposed by God to be this agent of His proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the Gentiles, to all the nations, to all the families of the earth is the term he uses later. And then look down at that great benediction which is abused by youth everywhere. How many are youth in here? How many would like to be youth in here? (laughs) Here's what I mean. When I was a youth, you know, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, I took this verse completely out of context. This is in in a missions context chapter. And I would pray this, Lord, please do exceedingly abundantly beyond all I ask or think to help me pass this exam that I didn't study enough for. Or, even more crude, it's like, Lord, do exceedingly abundantly beyond all I ask or think and help that girl to like me. That's completely out of context, friends. Don't use it that way. In the context of missions, it's like this. We have the right and privilege to think this way and pray this way, this benediction, 
when we are in alignment with God's purposes, which includes the local church, and it even says so explicitly here. Read it carefully. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the, what? Church. And if you accept my argument, you can study it for yourself. Paul's thinking local church. To him be glory in the local church, local churches everywhere, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. So formerly, you know, kind of blitzing through reading Bible, I would think, yeah, glory to Jesus Christ everywhere. That's cool. And I totally miss the church bit. But it's there. It is there. And we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Amen? It's okay to say amen. We're like south of the Mason-Dixon line. And I'm from Atlanta. I really need your help. So we believe in the inspiration of Scripture. Amen? Oh, see? You're even awake. That's good. So what I want to do is walk you through really quickly a sort of a Bible study explaining why I suppose and propose that the local church is the center of God's plan for missions. It's the priority for God's plan for missions. There's lots and lots of practical things, but I'm going to reflect on some biblical observations, if you will. So here's my proposition. The planting of indigenous local churches should be the priority, intentional end result of all missions ministries. I got that? Let me read it again. I I don't have it memorized, so I have to read it. The planting of indigenous local churches should be the priority, intentional end result of all missions ministries. Now, I want you to understand this, so we're going to take just a minute or two and walk through it a little bit. The planning of indigenous local churches does not say the construction of buildings. It is not evangelism or discipleship of individuals unconnected to each other. It is not ministries designed to support or develop existing churches or even a subset of those churches. It does mean that planting is starting something new. Local church planting includes the whole process from evangelism and discipleship and establishing building leaders and having the indigenous people of that place, like Clearwater, Florida, have leaders that reflect that and, and liturgy, if you will, that reflects that. And that's, that's indigenous church leadership responsible for ministry in their community. The priority intentional end result simply means that it does have a priority consciously in what we think of as the end result of ministry. It means that all missions ministry should be aimed at supporting that goal. So I maintain and teach in churches wherever I go and helping elders in those churches and missions teams, missions pastors in those churches. Look, you need to think in terms of if it is an evangelistic ministry, do they have consciously in mind that that evangelism contributes toward the goal of establishing indigenous local churches over here. If it's a discipleship ministry, if it's a literature ministry, if it's whatever ministry, medical ministry, sports ministry, all of those good things, but they need to have in mind what God purposed from eternity. 
that their ministry somehow consciously contributes to the planting, development of local churches that then carry on. It is unfortunate that missionaries come and go for all kinds of reasons. It's the indigenous local church that stays. So there's some good practical reasons as well. So let's take another fresh look at Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Take a look there. I want you to see this. Matthew 28, 18, familiar passage. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Now, making disciples is the main verb. Everybody understand that. That's fine. And it involves more than just a a narrow view of discipleship, like meeting with somebody and memorizing verses and going over Scripture and applying it. It's In in this case, in many cases, it's that whole process of pre-evangelism, if you will, sharing the gospel and then seeing people come to repentance and faith in Christ and then leading them in some basic understanding of the gospel and its application in their life and how it changes their life, some of the disciplines of the Christian life, those kinds of things. That's Discipleship includes all of that stuff. It does say making disciples of all nations, and this is so often preached and taught as the primary missions passage, and well so, there's nothing wrong with that, but all nations includes... Central Florida, by the way. And you have some of those all nations. I saw some last night. There's this big Greek area over there. What what did Greece do to move their nation here? But catching sponges, I guess, and things like that. But but for whatever reason, God uses a, a lot of circumstances for nations to move all over the place. We have, yes, the nations at our doorstep in many respects. But all nations does include every ethnic people group in the world. And for those of us involved in strategy for missions, we often go immediately in our minds to unreached people groups. That is, people groups that have not had sufficient access to the gospel or response to the gospel, that they don't have a strong indigenous local church presence that helps to evangelize their own people. So they need cross-cultural ministry to come in in order to penetrate with the gospel. There's actually a statistic, a demographic that goes with that, that it's something like 5% of the people. If 5% of the people aren't Christians, aren't believers, then there may not be enough inertia than for the indigenous church to reach the rest of them. And that people group, that ethnicity, wherever they are, might be considered an unreached people group. So India, for example, has the most unreached people groups. We think of India as a political nation, and it is that, but it's filled with ethnic groups that are quite different from each other and don't really associate with each other. They may have different languages, they certainly have different culture, and yet they're all within one political nation. There are 2,300 unreached people groups 
within the boundaries of political India. And the strategic mission thinkers would say, the Great Commission is not completed until we have an indigenous local church in every single one of those 2,300 unreached people groups of India. So that is an important component of the whole thing. But then think through the rest of it. It says, baptizing, which comes as a result of making disciples. Who baptizes? Who baptizes? The local church. Good answer. The local church baptizes. We all think of, pretty much universally, except in, with rare exceptions, that it is established, known church leaders that at least supervise the baptizing of new believers. And so you can't really fulfill the baptizing function unless you have some mature believers, again, there may be some exceptions, mature believers doing that thing, helping, assisting with that process. Kind of smells a little bit like a local church happening. Then look what it says. It says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, what is the all that I have commanded you? It's not just the things that, that show up in red letters in your red letter Bible. Christ made that very clear, particularly at the close of his ministry, when he expanded his disciples' awareness, mind, to understand that all of the scriptures from the Torah, the Psalms, the prophets, spoke about him. They understood that really the scriptures are all that I commanded you. The epistles which followed the resurrection of Christ are specifically an extension. And Luke makes it pretty clear at the beginning of Acts that these are the things which the Lord and the Holy Spirit continued to do. I mean, there is this, this linkage that says, even the things we read in the epistles all the way to Revelation are an extension of and part of what Jesus commanded us. In other words, you're going to teach them to observe all the Scriptures. And we all love expository Bible teaching, verse-by-verse -verse Bible teaching. We even have radio programs that go by that. It's great. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. You teach believers that. In what context does that happen? Local church. See, you're tracking with me. I see people nodding, and it's not nodding asleep. It's the nodding agreement. Yeah, good. That's good. Because this can only happen within the context of a group of believers that meet regularly together for worship, edification, exhortation in the Word. And the only way to obey all those commands is to have a group of mutually committed believers in a local place we call a local church obeying those commands together and challenging, encouraging, admonishing one another to follow through in obedience to Christ and growing in maturity. You cannot obey the one another commands, 40 some of them, in the New Testament without being a committed part of mutual believers meeting together regularly to encourage each other to do those things. Isn't that obvious? It's as plain as the nose on my face, which is maybe not as plain as the nose on Steve's face, but <laughs> we, we, we share a common heritage. We're brothers. But 
This is, this is the truth that we somehow skim over in our thinking. We just don't see that because we've seen this preached as a missions text to go to, you know, the ends of the earth. So many times we fail to see that it has really application for us today. It is right to be committed to your local church, to be involved, to attend, to interact with people, to have relationships. You are commanded to do those one and other things. And you cannot do it as a lone ranger. You cannot do it as a hit and miss. You cannot do it as a visitor in multiple churches over multiple times. You just cannot do that. So I want to say that if you're not doing that, after this morning, you might be in sin. Now maybe you didn't see it before, and I'm I'm not trying to lower the boom on you, I don't even know who you are, but you, you need to be doing that. You need to be committed to your local church so that you can fulfill the great commission right here to observe all the things that Christ commanded to do those one another commands. It's very important, and it can't be done alone. Christianity is a team sport. It is not an individual sport. We do this together. We help each other. We need each other. And God has given us to each other. God has given, if you will allow me the extension today anyway, God has given you to me and me to you, warts and all. There may be somebody, hypothetically out there, that just irritates you. I'm not talking about at home. I'm talking about at church. God placed that person in your life for a reason. And if they're part of the local church, God intended for you and whoever that person is to be able to grow to be more like Christ and less irascible to each other, less irritating to each other. Got that? So everybody's going to go out and find that person and make up. I don't know. But consider other statements of our Lord. Matthew 16, 18, how he emphasizes the church. I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ spoke of the church. He had in mind the church as the result and purpose of his cross work and resurrection. Matthew 18, 15, that was 16, 18, this is 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, this is the, the sort of the process of, of church restoration Go and tell him his fault between you and him. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So we don't like to deal with that passage very much, but it's there and it is Christ's instruction that this body of believers actually have a process to to have restoration from sin, to have the appropriate admonition or loving confrontation privately and then move together and then it it elevates perhaps if there's not repentance and restoration earlier to the level of church awareness and then the church has a, a role in helping this thing come to resolution one way or another. In our church, we think of Church discipline, if you will, or church restoration process is happening all the time, like every day, every Sunday. 
Because it's all happening on this, this lower tier level, privately. A brother comes to me, as one did not too long ago, and said, put his arm around me, took me out of entering into a Sunday school class, and said, David, I noticed that you spoke harshly to your wife. I think that that was uh, wrong. And you need to change your way. And you probably, if you haven't already, need to apologize to your wife. Like, oh man, I didn't invite you over to my house to do that. But he was exactly right on. And praise God, there was, there was grace and mercy right there. I mean, I, I hugged him and, and we prayed and I thanked him. For lovingly, as a Christian brother, as he should, confronting me and telling me to fix it and get it, get it right. We should be doing that all the time. That's part of the nature of this one anothering in the church to help each other grow and mature and overcome these sinful pitfalls that occur to us just because we're human. It happens. And the brother was right. Jesus is concerned about local churches in John's vision in the Revelation. We're not going to go there, but just think about those first chapters particularly. He refers to specific local churches, not just this great universal church, which is a good thing, but specific local churches, and uses the term church or churches 19 times in the first three chapters, and then again in chapter 22. That's amazing to me. What does that say about Christ? And his priority on local churches. It's a pretty big deal. Consider the ministry of the apostles. I'm going to have to hustle here to get through all this. But the apostles were the original recipients of Jesus' teaching and of the Great Commission. And Christ gave it more than once. It wasn't just Matthew 28. We think of Matthew 28 as being sort of the keystone, the one that gets highlighted the most. But he repeated it in different ways and different forms through all the latter part of his ministry, and particularly after the resurrection. It's interesting to know that, just observe, that the obedience of the apostles, the original recipients of the Great Commission, in its various forms, wherever they went, what did they do? They established sports clubs. No? They... they they established Christian reading centers. They, they established, uh, what, e evangelism outreach on the street. And then that's it. No, not that either. They established indigenous local churches wherever they went. We know of Paul and his colleagues best because of the book of Acts and Paul's writings. But tradition holds that Every single one of the apostles scattered to different places. There was a, a, a core in Jerusalem, but they went all over the place. It's interesting, I, when we were in the Philippines, we had this dear friend whose name was Thomas V. Thomas. He was from India. Thomas V. Thomas. In today's lingo, he would probably be Thomas squared, or Thomas two, or T2, or Mr. T, or something. He didn't have that kind of haircut. But his middle name, V, stood for this Indian name that was like 26 random letters all run together. 
So he went by V. Why in the world did this guy from southern India have a name like Thomas, a surname like Thomas? And he assured me that there were Thomases all through southern India. Well, the only way that we can think of that that happened is the Apostle Thomas, by church tradition, went to India. Amazing. I mean, from Palestine to India? That's a long way. And that was like before Magellan and before Delta Airlines. That's a long way. And apparently, he went to India and shared the gospel, and a whole bunch of people adopted that surname, and here's a whole bunch of Thomases. So if you meet an Indian guy with a last name Thomas, ask him how he got his name and share the gospel with him. Because it's so many generations, maybe he doesn't even know it, doesn't realize it. But all the apostles went and planted local churches. The understanding of the mission's task was the establishment of local churches. And as in Acts 14.23, if you want to write that down in your notes, check it out. When the apostles evangelized and started local churches, they appointed elders. So it was sort of a complete package. It was the evangelism, Bible teaching, discipleship, establishment of local leaders, and then they were a local church. That was part of the thing. It was not really complete until they had that whole package. This is a local church. The followers of the apostles were taught to do the same, namely to minister in such a way that indigenous churches were planted everywhere. So, for example, the whole province of Asia and the church in Laodicea and Colossae were planted because of Paul's teaching in the center in Ephesus, in that province. It's now western Turkey. But the saying was that everyone throughout the province heard the gospel, and those two cities in particular, which were key cities, Paul never visited. But there were churches there. Why? Because Paul the Apostle knew that fulfillment of the Great Commission meant the priority on planting indigenous local churches and his his trainees, his disciples, his followers did the same thing. So it's pretty clear to us in Colossae that a man named Epaphras that we know later from the writings of Colossae, he was instrumental. He was probably taught by Paul and then he was instrumental in planting the church there. Titus on the island of Crete He was instructed very specifically, look, you need to put things in order there. You have a bunch of Christians, some of them have problems. You need to get qualified elders in every town where there's a church. You need to do that. That's part of the process. The claims of Romans 15, where Paul says, look, I want you as a church, Paul had not visited Rome at that point, I want you as a local church to help me in my missions task to reach Spain. And the presumption following Paul's pattern is that he's going to go to Spain to share the gospel and plant local churches there. And then you could go on the writings of Peter, James, and John, the author of Hebrews. All of these have hints of this thing. In fact, the way their instruction is taught, even the warnings of Hebrews, collectively are about believers mutually meeting together regularly for worship, for admonition, for exhortation, for following the ordinances like Lord's Table we have with us here today and baptism, having recognized leaders 
to lead them spiritually and help them grow and to do the one in others. That's all in there. In fact, in Hebrews 10, it's the great solid chapter. You know why it's a solid chapter? Because the commands in there are let us, let us, let us. Some people are just not getting it. (laughs) Read your Bible with fresh eyes. See these wonderful truths. It's, It's great. It says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And then later in the next chapter it says, you need to honor your church leaders in the proper way. Now my purpose this morning is not to tell you, look you guys, honor your church leaders. But it's there in the Word. You can read it for yourself. Make it easy for them to lead you by being cooperative and helpful, it says. So, look back again at Ephesians 3. The beginning of this passage is very dear to me because this is the passage that God used in my life to call me into missions. And then, as I continued to study on from this I was captured by this biblical principle that the local church was always in God's plan and purpose, and that's how he was going to bless the mission's effort. So I'll give you another little insight. I was not originally planning to be a Bible teacher, pastor, missionary kind of figure. I was originally planning to be an electrical engineer for gospel broadcasts into China and Russia, stuff like that. So I was telling Robert last night, I taught math and physics. I still think physics is way cool, and I I love it. But God changed my direction by speaking to me, if you will, through these verses, because I just loved the Bible and this ministry so much. And I saw Paul's call as the same kind of call that God used in my life. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me. This, this to me is so emphatic. So you study it a little deeper, and it's like, it's to me, 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 personally, me, this guy, not just me and maybe somebody else, it's me, by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we kind of started there And we're kind of moving toward the end of the line here and looking at this again. When you see that, isn't that so sweet? Doesn't that help us understand in Paul's mind what he learned from God's mind about his role? Yes, to share the gospel, but that the gospel would result in local churches. And that has always been God's plan. And then you go down to that benediction, which I'm not going to read again, and you see that it's God's plan to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond anything that we could imagine 
so that he gets glory through the church and through Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. That is just so sweet. How does that apply to missions? Well, let me just summarize again some of these thoughts and some fresh observations again to reinforce this idea. In missions, it's very, very important to have an understanding of this because everything else, it, it just it doesn't have the same point to which God intended without a conscious connection to this idea of planting local churches and seeing local churches strengthened and raised up. Briefly, those who receive the Great Commission directly, their contemporaries and their helpers fulfilled that mandate by planting and organizing indigenous churches. They understood that the fruit of obedience to the Great Commission resulted in the establishment of new local churches everywhere. Second observation again, the Great Commission cannot be fulfilled apart from a mutually committed group of believers meeting together for worship, teaching, edification, ordinances under biblically recognized church leadership. It's the natural product of completely fulfilling the Great Commission. The vast majority of New Testament epistles were addressed to local churches or leaders of local churches. This presumes, I admit it's a stretch, it's not strictly exegetical, but it presumes the local church to be the nexus of the practice of Christian life and maturity. And like I say, in most of the epistles, in in Philippians, in Colossians, in Ephesians, you cannot do the things in the practical sections of those books without being part of a mutually committed body of believers that are meeting regularly together for those things. You just can't do it. Jesus' promise to build his church and biblical teaching is set in the context of the local church. Jesus' messages to the seven churches of Asia speak to the significance and centrality of local churches in the perspective of Christ himself some 60 years after the giving of the Great Commission. So it's just not an add-on. This is a long time, six decades later. The one another commands in the New Testament refer to the dynamic relationships of Christians within a local church context. The local church in Antioch is the scriptural setting through which the Holy Spirit worked to set apart the first New Testament missionaries. Clearly in the outlook of Paul and Barnabas, the local church is intended as the initiator the means, and the ends of gospel missions ministry. You hear that? I was talking with the elders, I think it was yesterday. We've talked so much in the last few days, I don't know when it was said. But Paul and Barnabas knew from the Lord that they were being set apart for missions ministry. And Paul, in particular, we know a little bit more about his biography around those times, waited and learned and grew and developed approximately 12 years from the time he knew that God wanted him to be involved in missions to the time he was sent out by the church in Antioch. Now, I'm not recommending that every missionary candidate do that. It's not a 12-year development cycle necessarily. But for Paul, it was. And Paul was a pretty highly qualified guy. 
So you guys uh, don't get disappointed if you think God's calling you into missions, and it takes a little while. Paul appeals to the local church in Rome to send him to plant churches in Spain. Paul charges his colleagues, Timothy and Titus, to organize local churches and appoint spiritually qualified leaders. Uh, John appeals to the church leader named Gaius in in his third epistle. We call them postcard epistles because the whole thing could be written about this big. It doesn't even fill up a whole page in your Bible. But he appeals to Gaius to take care of missionaries and to send them out in a way that's worthy of the Lord and thereby to be fellow partakers, uh, partners with them in in the going forth of the truth. It's awesome. It's a local church role to do that. And then I, I strongly believe with a number of scriptural references that we won't touch on for time, that the local church validates and approves workers set apart for missionary. One of the little sayings we have in Propempo is, a person may believe that God's called them to, to missions, but we don't allow people to lay hands on themselves. You got that picture? It's just, just because you think God said so, doesn't make it so. It's good to think God said so. Paul writes about his commissioning and his personal compulsion to be involved in gospel ministry. That's important. You need to have this sort of fire that won't go out. I feel like I ought to be involved in missions. That's wonderful. But it is not an independent assessment It is assessment that is validated by people around you, specifically in your local church and your local church leaders. So as you work and develop ministry skill and experience and Christian maturity within the context of a local church, pretty soon everyone around you agrees, God has called this person to missions. And then, you know, you're free to complete the preparation, whatever that takes, and to go. The local church validates and approves workers set apart for ministry in much the same way you do elders. It's really not a different process. Or pastoral ministry. It's not a very different process. I mean, who, heaven forbid, that someone from here would say, I think God's called me to be a pastor and expect to preach the next Sunday in the pulpit. I mean, I'm, I would be like, hey, lightning rod, I don't want to be hit. That's, that's not how it's done. There are so many good and valid missions ministries out there, I could list them all. It would be a long, long list. And you know that. I mean, there, there are missionaries that are involved in all kinds of ministries. And in this day and age, we have, we're hit by media from all sides about the crying needs around the world. There's famine. There's warfare. There's civil war going on. There's terrorism. There's human trafficking. There's substance abuse and substance addiction and all of the stuff that goes with that. The city that has won the award this past year for having the most murders per capita is one that you might not suspect. It's Tegucigalpa, Honduras. Why? Because it is the highway for drug passing back and forth through Central America from South America to North America. 
And so there's all kinds of gang wars and drug wars and things like that, turf stuff going on. It's, it's the murder capital of the world right now. You wouldn't think that. Yet, the greatest human need is for the gospel of Jesus Christ. One uh, missionary candidate said this, it's a little quote, I was obsessed with the issues of justice and human trafficking until I came to reckon with the ultimate injustice, folks who've never had a chance to hear the gospel. We should be appalled by the deplorable circumstances around the world that are evidence of sin and fallenness all around us. But we need to be gripped by their greatest need. Their greatest need is for the gospel. I'm deeply involved in ministry to Muslims in the Middle East and North Africa. We are we're training people to go to these places. It's high security. There's a lot of difficulties, a lot of obstacles. But we believe that God wants the gospel proclaimed to them too. And people often ask me, you know, do you have any inside scoop on what's going on with terrorism out of the Middle East? You put all the labels on it you want. And I'm convinced more today than ever before that the only way to win the war on terrorism is to win the terrorists one by one to Jesus Christ. There are some that suppose that Muhammad himself was rejected by Christians before he created the system we know as Islam. So what do you do when you see someone who is covered be your uh, checkout person at the cash register? Do you look away? Are you embarrassed? What do you do? Do you ask them right out, hey, are you a terrorist? I don't think so. Not many have that chutzpah. I ask them, how long have you been here in America? Welcome to America. I look them in the eye. Thank you for serving us. We're glad you're here. One of the reasons I'm glad they're here is they're coming into access with the gospel that they never had before. Whatever their home country is, there's no doubt they have more access to the gospel here than anywhere else in the world. And we should exercise that access and freedom to share with them, to have them in our homes, to become friends with them, find out what their needs are. So I, I digress. You can do that with anybody. If, if they look a little strange, you may find out they are your neighbor. Ask them where they're from, what their family's like. I had a guy, I had a, a lawnmower that was performing less than adequately for my lawn in Georgia. And so I went and I, I posted it on Craigslist, didn't get any answer. I posted on this other thing, it was a local website where people post things for sale. And I put it out in my yard with a sign on it, and this is for sale. And I, it, the engine ran great. It ran, I, I hated to lose that engine. It didn't burn oil, it was great. But it just, the deck wasn't operating right, and I, I lost patience with it. And um, it, it actually hurt my shoulder trying to adjust the blades. And I said, I'm not going to let this thing hurt me anymore. I'm going to sell it. 
So this was like a day before Thanksgiving Day. And this guy calls me and he says, I want to buy your lawnmower. I said, fine. On the phone. I said, what's your name? It was obviously a Muslim name. I said, this is going to be great. So we arranged for him to come over to our house the morning of Thanksgiving. My wife has been up since like before dawn cooking potatoes and turkeys and such like stuff for the rest of the kinship group to descend upon like hordes of people and devour everything we have. But this guy really wanted to get it. And um, he knew it was a holiday. He was off and I was off and okay. So he comes over. Unfortunately, I just can't remember his, his name. I sort of abbreviate almost all Muslim names, both for security purposes and because my mind is so forgetful. This guy is Muhammad. Uh, Muhammad is actually the most used male name in all the world. So you're pretty safe. So Mo came over. And he's a middle-aged guy. And um, he's obviously of Muslim Semitic descent. And he has the name, right? So I'm suspicious. So we walk around to the mower, and of course, it doesn't start. The battery was dead. So I got my little charger thing. We charged it up for a while. We had a little, a few moments to speak. God just planned it that way. This guy had his little trailer, landscaping trailer, to put the mower on and everything. I asked him where he was from. And um, he was from Bosnia. Not what I suspected. I thought he was from the Middle East. He's from Bosnia. And this guy said, yeah, our family came across during the war and we got political asylum because of the war. And uh, we moved to the States. We had nothing except what was in our pockets. We had absolutely nothing. And he was like an engineer before the war in Bosnia. So he was just low, low, low when they came over. And uh, they had had a couple of kids with them. And he said, my, my son became a teenager here, and I found jobs. He just did manual labor jobs. And uh, my son had this deathly illness, like teenage onset of leukemia. And he was in the hospital, and we thought he was going to die. And a chaplain at the hospital talked to me, and this chaplain was Baptist. And he found out that I was Muslim. So the next day he came in the room and he said, can I pray with you? He said, yeah, you can pray for me. And he prayed for him and his family and the son. And he gave him a Quran. He had found a Quran. This chaplain had found a Quran, had intentionally gone out and gotten a Quran and wrapped it very nicely the way our Muslim friends would do in a, in a scarf, in a, in a nice uh, covering. And, and he handed it to him with respect and said, I thought you might want a Quran. And he gave him the Quran. And the guy said, I was incredibly touched. At that moment, we didn't know it at the time, my son's health took a turn for the better. And because of that kindness, he said, No Muslim would ever hand a Christian a Bible. No Catholic would hand a Muslim a Quran. But this guy, an evangelical Christian, gave me a Quran. He said, I stopped being a Muslim. He said, I'm not a Christian yet. 
I explained the gospel, sort of my little two-minute version. And he said, thank you. I said, can I pray for you? So that was, you know, years after his son's then eventual recovery. And he was working for a private school as a landscape guy. And he wanted the lawnmower for, basically, for parts. <laughs> and he got a good deal. He said, I know when I saw your ad, the town you lived in was one of good reputation. It would be a decent mower. I don't have to ask any more questions. It's fine. And I said, I'll, I'll pray for you. So this guy's on my prayer list, Mo, from Hapeville, Georgia. And there he is. But it, it's just these little acts of kindness that show Christian love and expression of the gospel in praying for somebody, asking them what their prayer needs are, welcoming them to America. I've welcomed people to America that live here like 15 years. But nobody had ever welcomed them before. Nobody had ever said, we're glad you're here, welcome to America. Most foreigners have never been inside a gringo's house. Thanksgiving is a wonderful time. I had the opportunity to share with Mo, what is the, the origin of Thanksgiving? He didn't know. He kind of came in the middle of his life. Nobody ever told him. I told him. I'm praying that God would save his soul. Sometimes we, we get mixed up with all of the things that are good to do, even the things that deal with horror around us. And we forget what the main thing is. The main thing is, the most important critical need in people's lives is the gospel. And soon after that is to get them connected with mutually meeting together of believers for watch care, for spiritual growth, all of the stuff that happens in a local church, they need to be integrated into the local church. We often confuse means with ends or mix up strategies with results. A lot of mission agencies out there can tell you this phenomenal strategies for doing this and that and the other and showing the Jesus film and, and having sports camps and all that stuff. We often confuse the means with the ends. The end is not how many people can you get to watch the Jesus film. I'm sorry, it's just not. It's not how many people can you get to sign a card that says they made some decision. That's not the end. That is not the end. In fact, it's even a false end sometimes. But hey, that is maybe perhaps a part of the strategy of God in planting indigenous local churches that are going to carry out the ministry and mature believers and reproduce and plant other churches and move and move and move. In Ayanganifugao in northern Philippines, we train guys. I didn't go to all these villages. I couldn't even go to all these villages. It wasn't safe for me to go to all these villages. But I would train Ayanganifugao guys and say, you be responsible to plant a church in the next village that doesn't have one. And they accepted what we said as if it was from the Lord or something. And they did it. It's amazing. There were scores and scores of churches that got planted that I never saw. Because they went and did the thing. Because we had the ends in mind. We didn't stop short with a strategy or a means or a method that didn't include the local church. Discipling whole nations involves planting local churches. I want you to understand that it applies to you here as well. 
So here again is my proposition. The planting of indigenous local churches should be the priority, intentional end result of all missions ministries. And in applying this, I want God to stir your hearts toward a stronger commitment to your own local church. So if you've been flaky on the edge, get over it, get involved, start giving your money and your heart. Uh, Jesus says there's a linkage there, right? And be a part of this local church. This is the way that God grows you to spiritual maturity. This is the means, the end that God has in view. And it is a little taste of heaven. Grow in your discernment to understand distinctions between various missions ministries. Grow in your discernment to understand the distinction between various missions ministries. There's a buku bunch of them out there. And you need to understand and ask questions and press toward what really is the end goal for your missions ministry. Do you have the end in mind? Is your ministry contributing toward the planting and establishing and developing and strengthening of local churches wherever you are? And then participate more fervently through caring, praying, and giving to biblical missions ministries toward fulfillment of the Great Commission. So I'm a little bit over. Thank you for your patience and your attentiveness. I trust that God will use these simple, simple thoughts to help refresh your understanding biblically of what missions is really all about. And in your own personal involvement, you, you get with the Lord this afternoon and ask how you can be better, as the elders have been asking, how we can be better as a church and being more effective in missions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dave. Let me close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the challenges we heard this morning regarding the centrality of the local church to your plans and purposes in our lives. Lord, even as I heard Dave speak, it made me thankful for Lakeside. Lord, for the men that have gone before us that helped establish this church and plant this church, and then for the faithful teaching that you've allowed Pastor Steve to do for so many years. Lord, we thank you for this church. And yet, Lord, we also thank you for the challenge that Lakeside is not the end for us. We have to participate in extending ministry and extending more churches wherever we can as part of our fulfillment of the Great Commission. So I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, help us have a renewed passion for sharing the gospel locally with those in need. And Lord, help us also have a passion for mission so that we would be purposeful in directing our resources and prayers and energies towards missions groups and missionaries that are strengthening churches and planting churches. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to do all of this, not in our own power, but by the power of your Spirit for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.